Let's all stand together at this time as we reverence the reading of God's Word. We're going to be looking at a message today I call the Lord of Christmas. The Lord of Christmas. Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. May God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. Amen. What what an incredible passage. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Uh, This is, of course, drawing our attention to that angelic scene, the announcement that was made to the shepherds. And we begin our consideration of this passage by thinking, of course, of the source of this scene, the angels of God. Simon Peter would speak of the Old Testament prophets who first revealed the truth of the coming Messiah of Israel. He tells us that they knew of the suffering substitute and how that the Messiah would suffer. And they also knew of the glory that should follow. And all we'd have to do is read uh, the prophet Isaiah to know that they knew of the suffering Messiah and the glorified Messiah. And they were struggling, though, how to put those things together. How could he be both the suffering Savior and also be the sovereign? How could he be both? How could there be both suffering and glory? Oh, they tried to puzzle it out, tried to figure it out, and they couldn't. But then they weren't alone. Because Simon Peter tells us of another group who were looking, watching to see what would happen. The angels. 1 Peter 1 and 12, unto whom it was revealed, that is to those Old Testament prophets, that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them which have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven which things... The angels desire to look into. Now, we might ascribe to the angels, if we're not careful, some sense of divine knowledge so that they, like God, know everything, but the angels don't. Uh, The angels are ministers, but they are also watchers, witnesses. Now, it's a matter of great speculation to try to imagine how this scene played out for the angels. And uh, if you've never read uh, 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 Gene Edwards' book about this, it'd be one to read. Uh, Although it's entirely fiction and speculation, it's a, a fun concept. Thinking about the angels puzzling over the incarnation. And then as the message comes down to them, God is going down. Okay, uh, what form? Well, he'll be formed in the womb of a virgin. What? He's going to become a man. What? We can only speculate. 
Now, they knew some things, of course, but uh, they were desiring to look into this entire matter. The throne of God, you'll remember, is always portrayed in Scripture, surrounded by the seraphim, those uh, angelic creatures whose job it is to be the guardians of the holiness of God. Nothing could approach God or His throne uh, because God is holy and nothing holy would be permitted. The seraphim, those terrible, beastly creatures with faces that moved in every direction and pointed to the north, south, east, and west so that they could never be approached in a stealthy manner. And all the, the angels were always guarding the throne of God. Imagine how they must have felt when they found out that God was coming down without the seraphim. That he was going to be inside his mother. That he would be born. That he'd be a baby. That God would take on something as incredible, incredibly frail as human flesh. No wonder Satan would quote the great truth of Psalm 91:11 to Jesus during his temptation. As an angel himself, fallen though he was, he certainly knew of this passage of Scripture. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So that when God assumed that human form, he was carefully watched over by the angels. And the devil knew it. Our minds can't help but spring forward then to that awful scene at the crucifixion when he was mauled and mocked and tortured and scourged. In my mind, I could see the legions of angels straining over the ramparts of heaven at a single command they would have poured over and put a stop to that whole bloody business and ushered in Armageddon on the spot. But that command, that order was never issued. The command never came. And they watched with their wings folded as Jesus suffered and bled and died. We could spend a whole message this morning just on the source of this message or this uh, revelation, the angels themselves. But of course, we have to move on. And that is the subjects of, of the revelation, the shepherds. The angels were revealing this. They were revealing it to shepherds. Shepherds living out in the fields. This would be understandable to us if perhaps the angels had appeared to an emergency meeting of the Sanhedrin council. This was the 70 men. With the addition of the high priest, it made 71 in the days of Jesus. It was assembled in ancient form. It goes all the way back to Moses when he called forth those 70 elders of Israel. And this 70 formed then a high court, both a political and a religious body, responsible for the election of the high priest, making of decisions, 
In some cases, they were even able to get away with passing death sentences, although they weren't supposed to. But there was a great danger in falling before the council. This was an official gathering. Uh, They could have been assembled. The angels could have made that announcement to the Sanhedrin, the official governing body of the Jews. Your king is born in Bethlehem. We could understand that. We could understand it had they simply bypassed that and just jumped straight over into Jerusalem. I mean, you know, depending on what time of the year it was, it could have been a whole lot of people there. Uh, It was a a fairly large city, uh, tens of thousands of people who lived there so that uh, he could have simply, the angels could have announced it in Jerusalem all at once. And everybody would have seen it and everyone would have heard it. Your Savior, the Messiah, is born in Bethlehem. The more astute of them would have recognized that, of course, he was born in Bethlehem. That's what the script said. That's what the prophets had said. So they wouldn't have been amazed that he was born in Bethlehem instead of Jerusalem because that's what the Bible said. It seemed like quite a plan when you think about it. I mean, there would have been no question about it then. They would have found him immediately. They would have gone to him, surely. That plan would have worked. That was not the plan. It's not the plan. Instead, the angels ignored both the council and the city. And they appeared to the shepherds in the dark fields around that ancient village of Bethlehem, a suburb, if you will, of Jerusalem. Shepherds, not rulers. Not kings, not the city dwellers, not the elite, shepherds abiding in the fields. So if we see the source of the revelation, the angels and the subjects, what they revealed this revelation to, and that was the shepherds, of course we have to ask what the message then was all about the Savior. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, the Savior, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. According to Luke, in this announcement, the angels brought together two words that are not found together anywhere else in the New Testament except here. It is Christ the Lord. In Greek, it is Christos, Kyrios, and not found anywhere else. The Savior is Christ the Lord. So apart from that, that the angels then used the unique expression of this truth, it was not at all a unique concept because there were many, many passages that they did not use the exact same words the angels did. They certainly presented the concept. Savior, Christ, Lord. I'm going to read you a few. 1 Timothy 1 and 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Savior, Lord, Christ. 
Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Savior, Lord Christ. Titus chapter 1 and verse 4, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Savior, Lord Christ. 2 Peter 1 and 11, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, Savior, Christ. 2 Peter 3, 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, Savior, Christ. I thought about this time, you might be thinking it's a little bit redundant, so I left out the fact because Simon Peter put it two more times in just his two epistles. Four different passages refer to the Lord, our Savior, our Christ, our Savior. Jesus is certainly the Messiah. And he is, I hope, the Savior of every person in this building and all of you watching from home. I hope he's your Savior. Unto you this day is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We can certainly say this morning that Jesus earned that title, Christ the Lord. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, got ahead of myself, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In one amazing passage then, Paul takes us all the way from his virgin birth. Because Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He was made. Oh, we'll buzz right through that passage if we don't take a moment to stumble over it and just put our toe down and say, no, I'm not just going to buzz through this. I'm going to stop instead and think about the fact that, uh, yeah, the creator of everything was made. He couldn't be a man any other way. He had to be made the same way that you and I were made. He had to be born then the same way that you and I were born with that one incredibly unique difference so that when Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary, his father was the Holy Ghost so that that which was conceived in her could be called the Son of God. All the way then from his virgin birth, he took upon him the form of a servant to his virtuous life. He humbled himself and became obedient so that while Jesus Christ was tempted in all points like as you and I are, 
yet he was without sin. There was never a single time in his life where Jesus did not uh, fail to obey God. A a time when he had to say, I'm sorry. A time when he had to say, "Uh, please forgive me. No, Jesus lived an absolutely virtuous life. So we have his virgin birth, his virtuous life. He humbled himself and became obedient. His vicarious death, even the death of the cross. By vicarious, we mean to say that his death was for somebody else. He died for you and I in a way that no one else could. Other people might give their life to save our life. We hear stories like that from battlefields and accident scenes and, and our first responders all, all the time, far too frequently. But nobody could give their life for somebody like Jesus gave his life for you and I. Because he doesn't save us just for a little while. He saves us for eternity. His vicarious death. Even the death of the cross. (laughs) But then there's that victorious resurrection. You just say, well, I I didn't notice the resurrection there. Well, look again. Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him. The word exalt means to raise. But not just to raise, but to raise to supreme authority. He has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. And his vital return, his virgin birth, virtuous life, vicarious death, victorious resurrection, and his vital return that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all of that in one paragraph, quite a paragraph, by the way. If you ever wonder, well, do I really believe that the Bible is inspired? Just read Philippians 2, 5 through 11. No human pen could have come up with that on their own. It's amazing. An amazing description. So much packed in there in one verse, in one paragraph. So we have the simple truth that Jesus Christ has earned that title of Lord. Yes, he did. But we also have before us this incredible announcement. So that unto you this day is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Uh, No wonder that Luke tells us that all who heard what the shepherds had to say wondered. Of course they did. And that even Mary pondered these things in her heart. What two great responses to this angelic announcement are recorded by Dr. Luke. They, they wondered. That is, they were amazed. They, they wondered. And they pondered. I want to say to you this morning that God helped the people who ever lose their sense of wonder and awe at the truth of the incarnation. God help us if we've lost our wonder. If we have, if maybe somehow in all the hustle and bustle and busyness of the season, uh, we need to take a deep breath. And just think about it. God came near. God was born and put in a manger 
in Bethlehem. All who heard it wondered. They were awestruck. And they pondered. Really like that word, ponder. This is a word that means to bring together. It is what we do when we're putting things together in our mind and running them over my head. And I know I'm not the only person in this building that does that. You do it if you're like me. You do it when you're driving down the road. Uh, You do it by yourself. Uh, You do it when you're with somebody. Sometimes you do it in church. Some of you are doing it right now. We're pondering things, bringing together things in our mind, rolling them over again and again in our minds And this was what Mary was doing. What are we giving serious thought to? Pondering. Well, if you read the news, it would seem that most people in America are pondering whether Taylor Swift is going to get a ring this year for Christmas. (laughs) All you Swifties, you know who you are. We might be pondering a lot of things this year. Some important, some trivial But today I'm calling us to ponder the fact that Jesus was born as our Savior, Christ the Lord, the Lord of Christmas. When we ponder it and seriously reflect upon it, we consider then how this text makes it all come alive in real terms for us all today. Every bit as much as it did for the shepherds in Bethlehem so long ago, for me, for you, for my family, for your family Unto you is born this day in the city of David, the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. Now, that is what we could call a theological truth. It is certainly a historical truth. It is an ongoing and vital truth. We could consider it perhaps a lot of different ways. But I want us to close out today by making this very personal. In order to do that, we're going to look at one more passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 14, again written by the Apostle Paul long ago, and it makes this statement, none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Romans 14, 7 through 9. If we live or die, that uh, takes in the totality of our lives. And they're all wrapped up in the lordship of Jesus Christ, Christ the Lord. What does it mean that Christ is the Lord? What does it mean that he is the Lord of Christmas? Well, ask anybody living under the rule of a king in Bible times, and they would perhaps understand this passage a lot better than we do, for they lived under the power of a sovereign who who might be a good king, might be a bad king, uh, but they lived under the power of a sovereign who held... Literally life and death in his hands. Whether you lived, uh, that was the king's choice. Whether you died, that was the king's choice. What you did with your life, that was the king's choice. So to live under the power of a sovereign who held 
the power of life and death and the control of life in their hands. They, they certainly knew what that was like. But in Romans chapter 14, we see what it is like to live under the lordship of our Savior, the one, by the way, who died for us. So what's it like to live under this king? Well, it means, number one, we don't have to fear his sovereignty. You see, Romans chapter 14 is designed to inspire faith, not fear. It tells us that our life then, because we are believers in Christ and because we have received him as our Savior, because our Savior is Christ the Lord, then we know that in the living of our life, there is a higher power than ours. (laughs) But it's not just a higher power that you might hear in a 12-step program, because this is a higher person. There's somebody, indeed, as, as George Say was fond of saying, there is singing, rather, somebody bigger than you and I. Our Savior is Christ the Lord. And that's a good thing to know. But not only in our life, but also in our death, that we know that Jesus is the Lord both of the dead and the living. It does not imply that people are merely dead, for death does not have that kind of power over those who believe. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we are told that they are dead in Christ. Not just dead, they're dead in Christ. We're told again in that same passage that they sleep in Jesus. What are we talking about? Paul was talking then, and we could still talk today about the multitudes of believers whose time in this body is over. What are they? Well, they're dead, but they're not just dead. (laughs) They're dead in Christ. They have claimed the promise of 2 Corinthians 5 and 8, which tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So that we know that in life we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and we know that in death we go to the Lord Jesus Christ. That seems to have the situation well in hand. Whether we live live or die, then Paul says, we are the Lord's. That's what it means to have a Savior who is Christ the Lord. If you're saved this morning in this building or watching from home, if you are saved today, you are saved because you believed and confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. I pray you're absolutely certain about your salvation experience. And I call it an experience for a very good reason. Jesus said you must be born again. And you know when your birthday was, though you don't remember it, your mama certainly does. You were born at a certain moment in time. And the, be, being born again is the same thing. It's not just some kind of a gradual thing that, uh, well, I, I kind of think I am. No, listen, Jesus said you must be born again. And remember, he was talking to a good religious guy when he said that. By the way, a member of that 70, the Sanhedrin. So I hope today you can look back and, and, and remember that time when you confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, when you believed on him and you were saved so that you can say, yes, I was saved. I remember when I was saved. I know I am saved. 
And if you know that, then there's one more thing that you're certain of, and that is you're certain of your destiny. That either through death or through the rapture, when the voice of God will sound and call his people home, one way or another, we are leaving this world not like we are. Because flesh and blood, the Bible tells us, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We are leaving this world, and when we do, however, whenever that might be, we know we're confident. Just as we are confident that we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior then, we face the future with that same confidence. I know that I'm going to go and be with the Lord. So that if I live, I live unto the Lord. And if I die... I die unto the Lord. Whether therefore we live or die, that pretty well covers it. We are the Lord's. That's what it means to have a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. But there's more. See, I hope you're firm on that front end. Yes, I confess Jesus as my Savior. If you are, then you should be firm on the back end that you know where you're going when you die. But what about in the middle? Uh, What about Christmas Eve 2023? How are you doing this morning with the truth of the Lordship of Jesus Christ? It was back in 2005 when Carrie Underwood released her debut album, And it contained a song on it that went to number one. It was a song about written, she didn't write it, someone else did, but it was a song written about a woman traveling home to Cincinnati on a snow white Christmas Eve. The woman was running low on faith in gasoline with 50 miles to go when she hit a patch of black ice and went spinning out of control with her her and her baby in the back seat. And as the song goes, she cried out, Jesus, take the wheel. There were a lot of people who were very critical of the fact that she had started her career, her debut song. It was a faith-based song that contained the name of Jesus and contained a strong message, a message intended to be a metaphor for life. The young lady of the song had had a hard year, she said. She's traveling alone with her baby, suddenly crying out to Jesus for help. It ended up praying about how sorry she was for the way she had been living her life. Well, I would say it turned out pretty good for Carrie Underwood. After all, it's gone triple platinum so far. And it's one of the top songs still today. Almost 20 years later, Jesus take the wheel. You see, it's all really about life. It's a metaphor for life. That's what the song was. It's not just about Jesus delivering you from a certain car wreck. It's uh, about how Jesus can deliver you from a life wreck. Jesus take the wheel. See, how how we're doing right now with the lordship of Jesus Christ in our life has a whole lot to do with whose hands are on the wheel. And we're either driving our own life and making up our own plans and our 
own direction, going our own way. And don't be surprised if that's the case that we're going to find ourselves careening out of control sooner or later. That's the way it ends up when we've got our hands on the wheel. But when we cry out to Jesus, and you don't have to wait till you hit a patch of black ice. These days, that might not happen until 2027 or something, you know. You don't get a lot of snow and ice down here these days. You don't have to wait for something like that. You can do it right now. How are you doing with the Lordship of Christ? Whose hands are on the wheel of your life? To this end, Christ both died and rose and revived. I like that word the old King James says. That he might be Lord of the living and the dead. Let's stand together, please.